From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. If you didn't know already, the name Innovators on Tap was inspired by my time at Cree and a certain strategy that I used when we got stuck on a tough problem. When we had hit the wall and were failing to make any progress on some particular challenge, I would often suggest that we step back, leave the office, and go grab a beer. Now, it wasn't necessarily that drinking beer helped, although it probably didn't hurt, but by breaking our routine, getting out of the structure that comes with an office environment, and resetting the context, well, it allowed us to see the problem in a different light, with a new perspective, and it made people more willing to entertain new ideas. More often than not, This strategy resulted in a unique solution to solve the challenge we had and left me with a bar tab, but it was worth it. To be clear, you don't need to go to a bar. You just have to physically get out of your box. Any change of scenery that allows you to disrupt your normal way of thinking can give you powerful and unique insights into the issues that you're stuck on. So when I had the opportunity to do a joint podcast with Chris Lukey, who also hosts a show with a beer-inspired name, I was happy to say yes. Chris is an account manager for Rockwell Automation and also the host of Manufacturing Happy Hour. Today's episode is a recording of our live conversation that focused on the benefits of the brutal truth, how trying to manage your career may not be the best strategy, and the delicate balance between managing and leading. It was a really fun conversation. Many thanks to Jim and Tony, who provided us the space at Milwaukee Brewing Company to host this live podcast and for some great beer. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. This is a very unique situation because two, and maybe arguably the only two, beer-fueled tech and innovation podcasts in the world are on stage tonight here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, Chuck, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick things off. I'm curious because let's set some context for the folks out here that might not know, um, your podcast, my podcast, or both of our podcasts. In, in a life where you were with Cree for 27 years, successful career as a CEO for over 16 of those, um, you are now the innovator in residence at Marquette. After all of that, where does Innovators on Tap come from? What's the story behind that? So, you know, uh, you spend your career as a CEO and you're busy every day and all of a sudden you're retired and you got a lot of free time. And uh, I found things to do. And it really started out with something that happened here at Marquette. So Dr. Rappella, the Dean of Engineering, and Kate Trevi asked me to come in one day and talk about something they were doing at Marquette, which is uh, the Innovation Leadership Program. And I decided to provide them some feedback on what they could do better. And they said, that's really great. Now you need to write us a book. So I wrote a book. (laughs) And as I was writing the book, I had this aha moment that I had these great experiences. But I met all these people who had done innovation that you've never heard of. So instead of the rock star innovator, these are the people that are doing it every day. And I said, 
you know, we could create something where we can get those stories out there. So that was really the genesis. It was an opportunity to tell all these other stories of innovation that's happening every day. Because I think once people see and realize it's possible, they're much more willing to do it. Absolutely. And for those, um, for those of you that are curious, The Innovator's Spirit is the book that Chuck is referring to. It comes out in early May, correct? May 5th. May 5th is the date, so keep an eye out for that. I like what you say about talking to all these innovators that weren't necessarily rock stars, because that had a lot to do with one of the reasons that Manufacturing Happy Hour came about as well. Um, I imagine some of you out there are podcast listeners, and I feel like in the podcasting world, there's this cycle of like a thousand entrepreneurs that are on every other podcast. But being in the manufacturing industry, looking at all these leaders, people with years of experience and stories to talk to and distill knowledge for the next generation or those that are in the workforce right now, I saw an opportunity to like start sharing those stories um, on my end um, to highlight a lot of the knowledge that in my mind was not really out there in the way it could be given all the tools and technology that we have right now to distribute that type of content. Yeah, I think what was important is that people realize you don't have to be a rock star CEO to do this. Now, that being said, the way that was pitched to me originally was this would be great, Chuck. You know, most people think innovators are famous and successful. You could tell your story instead. And I said, what are you saying? I mean, I thought I did pretty well, but apparently I'm the regular guy. So anyways, we here we are. Well, I mean, you, you are a CEO. I am like a plebeian relative to that. I'm an early career guy that has no business being up here, but... The way I looked at it was there's there's a tremendous opportunity for someone that's just getting in to the industry or relatively early in their career to learn a ton from this process. So where I'm always curious is I love learning from folks like yourself that have been through it, that have seen it all. So that way, not only do I learn in the process, but we have the opportunity to share that with others that are starting their career as well. Well, actually, the reason I do this is I learn. Every person I've met, I've learned something from that despite what I did in my career, you can be learning every day. And the podcast is an amazing vehicle to get into people and how do they really think. And so for me, it's been a, we probably have a more similar reason for doing it. We're just at different phases of our career. I love the mission behind your show also, which to set some definition as we go further into this conversation, you refer to innovation as a mindset. Can you go into that just to set a baseline for some of our conversation to come? So well, I spent 25 years building the company and, and innovation to me means something very specific. It's something new. It has to solve a problem and it has to create value. So I distinguish innovation from what a lot of other people would call invention or improvement. So I have to start there first. And when you look at doing what I consider to be innovation, what you realize is that we all talk about process and tools. Or we talk about the new part. It's actually solving a problem and creating value is where the hard part is. And from what I learned in my own experience and actually from the podcast, it has more to do with someone's mindset that has to do with any process out there. It's how someone thinks and how they're wired. It's the, you know, are they able to really take the risk necessary to do this? Um, one person asked me one time, I said, you know, I'd like to be in innovation, but I'd like to manage the risk. And they're connected. Innovation and risk are fundamentally linked. And so if you have a limited risk budget, you're going to limit how much innovation you can have and vice versa. Now, one, one thing I'd like to do with that, and, I, and something that you mentioned that stuck out with me, because I was trying to think, what was my baseline definition of innovation earlier today as I was preparing for this? And I, I just took the really simple scenario, when I'm sitting down somewhere, whether it's in the manufacturing plant, whether it's in a meeting, 
I was trying to think of what are the things that trigger me to say, huh, well, that was innovative. And it really came down to, I guess my baseline definition was around seeing a novel approach to solving a problem was what it came down to. Not necessarily something where you're reinventing the wheel because, you know, what you and I do with our podcasts or let's say what I'm doing with Manufacturing Happy Hour, I'm talking about trends and technologies that impact the manufacturing industry with leaders in that space. You know, it's nothing new per se. People are doing that in certain different ways, but I'm repurposing it for an industry where we don't see it all the time. The way I would say it is, is that innovation doesn't have to be an idea no one ever thought of before. It could be an old idea applied in a new way to a new problem. In fact, if you look at the success of innovation out there is most of the really great ideas, someone borrowed from another place or another industry and repurposed it. And that's why it's the, can you take that idea though and not just solve a problem, but create value. And the reason I put the value part in there is this. There's a lot of widgets. Think about the U.S. Patent Office. Billions of patents. Most of them will never solve a problem or make any difference in the world. But if you could solve a problem and someone will pay you or create value, however that is, that's when you know you've really done something. And that actually comes from an old Thomas Edison quote, which he basically said he didn't want to invent anything that someone wouldn't pay for, because that's the only way he knew it was worth doing. And I'm, I'm curious, because I want to tie this into your experience leading, um, ultimately, a manufacturing company for so long. Do you have a story that like comes to mind, like an example of what innovation looked like at Cree, based on the definition you just gave? So Cree was a manufacturing company. We were also a technology company. And I think what you have to realize is one of the challenges is to be great at manufacturing, you have to embrace a set of tools that are well-known, that work really well. I'll just use Six Sigma as a generic, but we know it's broader than that. But let's just use that concept. I was trained in that, and that's a great tool. It will absolutely not allow you to innovate, to my definition. Because what it's designed to do is to take something and reduce variability to get you a more predictable outcome, which is very valuable in a manufacturing plant. You want to do that. The problem is, is that if innovation is something you've never done before, it's not in the distribution to start with. So you have to actually come up with a way to get people to think of something that's not even within those boundary conditions. And so one of the challenges, I think, in a manufacturing environment is the things that make you really good at manufacturing tend to get in the way of the things you'd want to do for innovation. And so I think one of the advantages we had at Cree was this small company without a lot of resources competing against really big companies. So what our disadvantage was, was those lack of resources. So when we built our company, we could not afford R&D equipment. So we did R&D and manufacturing on all the same tools. We ran it in parallel. And what you realized is what we gave up in control and predictability, we got back in speed and innovation. Now, that being said, there's a benefit to each side of this, and it's really about optimizing what's most important to you. I have a follow-up question that, that that just popped into mind because you mentioned when you're small, you have the ability to be a little more innovative, but there are a lot of large companies out there these days that are trying to be more innovative as well. What, what advice do you give to a large company that wants to be more innovative? One, it's really hard. So the things that make you good at being a large company is what I would call things we would call management. So management is essentially creating process or procedures, using best practices to get a predictable outcome. And it's highly rewarded. And by the way, I ran a large public company. It's really necessary if you don't want to get fired. So it's good. On the other hand, the better you get at that, the worse you are at doing all the things that it takes to be good at innovation. You're talking about 
taking a risk, not knowing what you're going to get as an outcome and being okay with that. I would say that anyone here that works in a large company, that generally gets you fired. At one point, Cree got so big that to do the best innovation, we literally created teams in secret and did not, we totally separated them from the traditional running of the business. So the Cree LED bulb was developed over a year in secret by five employees, and we told none of the other 7,000 employees. So is the advice then create these secret groups that allows you to innovate quicker? <laughs> I, I, it depends how far you want to go. Look, innovation takes a lot of forms. If we were, if we were trying to do something incremental, no. But if you want to do something that's completely outside the boundary conditions of what you're doing today, you have to create an environment where breaking the rules is the goal. And, and the problem is if we try to do that in a normal organization, how do you wrestle with the fact that your metrics tell you to do one thing and I'm telling you to do the other thing? It, it doesn't work that way. Management systems inherently are designed to prevent this. So what I would do is I would create necessarily secret but separate teams with very different objectives and a very different mindset. So I had a chance to interview the people at American Family Insurance. 92-year-old company, I would have thought there's nothing innovative about insurance. They've literally created a parallel organization that's doing this. And they embrace it for what it is. They accept the tension that comes from it. There's a different mindset to the people that work in that part than into the other part. And by the way, that's a good thing. Because if you have a claims problem and you want someone to help you, you don't necessarily want the most innovative person answering the call going, I don't know, but we could probably figure something out. You want someone who goes, yeah, I know how to help you out right away. So I think it's important to understand that it's a different approach for a different problem. Sure. On that note, maybe the topic we're on right now is an appropriate time to do it as well. I know you have your audience at Innovators on Tap as well. So is there anything that I haven't brought up yet that, that you're curious about? So what I always like to ask people about is a couple things. You work for a very successful large company. Do you think that Rockwell is innovative to my definition? And should it be? That's a good question. I'm 50-50 on it because I do see that. I, I do see innovation, risk-taking, according to your definition taking place at the same time you know a large company like rockwell automation has its has its areas that they're experts in already and needs to metric those and needs to continue to, to excel at those but if i look at that i would genuinely feel comfortable saying yes i think we've got that right balance between those two where we're taking innovative approaches and i think there's a an environment of empowerment a culture of empowerment that allows people to do those type of things. Yeah, so one of the things I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about is, so in a large company, you're not worried about typically if you're going to be fired next month because the company ran out of money. And so what you look at, and this comes from the people that fund like Google Ventures and those guys, they actually have a different success rate with companies they fund through Google Ventures than the ones they fund internally. They get much more not breakthrough ideas, but breakthrough innovations from the companies that their life depends on whether or not they can get there. And so one of the things I would say is that I was at a company that was $6 million and one that was at $1.6 billion. At $6 million, you're fighting for your life. You can break every rule tomorrow because no one really cares. It's either that or you're going home anyways. When you're in a successful business, it's very hard to break some of the things that made you successful in the first place. It just is. And so I think part of it's creating a human nature dynamic that creates for the problem you want to solve, do we have a dynamic that creates the risk that you want to take? And again, 
it's not one size fits all. And so I would say in much of Rockwell's business, that would be the wrong thing to do. But there are probably areas, for example, the newer areas, it's oftentimes for companies, the thing you're not as good at is the easiest one to innovate in. Because if you're not the leader, you're way more willing to take a risk to try to become the leader. But what? Right. But once you are the leader, it's really tough. And that happened at Cree. So um, I, I, I want to kind of get an example on this as well. Do you, you mentioned American Family Insurance. Great episode, by the way. Check that out. Innovators on Tap. Uh, one of your more, more recent ones. Um, do you have an example of a large company that you think has that right balance that you've seen? Or do you think that's still an opportunity for someone to crack? I don't know that I've seen anyone that has a really good approach to doing this in a large company. I would say what I've seen at American Family is probably the most advanced approach to really thinking this through. And, and they would tell you, honestly, they're still figuring out. And this is not a negative on what other companies are doing. I, there is a tension in a large business. I was the... I became a large company. I lived this. When I left Cree, we were much less innovative than when I started. So I had 16 years as CEO, and when I left, it wasn't the same company because that's not what we were paid to do. And it reminds me of a story that Bill Ford told. So Bill Ford spoke a few years ago that after the financial crisis, when they put up the Blue Ford Oval, they mortgaged it to basically keep the company funded. It, it was the only point in his time at Ford that they were able to make the changes that he for five years could not make as the CEO. Because once the company's name, his family heritage was mortgaged, then all the other rules went out the window. So I think for large organizations, they're much more innovative when they have to be. Got some other, other areas I want to talk to as well around your career that I'd love to look at. And, and uh, we've got a mix of students and early career folks from Rockwell in this audience tonight. You're an example of someone that did a lot of things at one company, from marketing to operations, from leading the whole organization. You know, what would be your advice to someone that's relatively young in their career? Yeah, so you can probably imagine he said the word managing your career, and I'm going to be like, I didn't do that. I set you up for that. <laughs> um, so I can relate my experience. My experience was one of recognizing opportunities and taking advantage of it. So... I was pretty happy to jump in at whatever was coming my way, work on that, and another opportunity would come up. I think what most people miss is they're so focused on trying to manage their career to some predetermined endpoint, they realize that they're not as in control as they think they are. So, you know, one of my sayings to people when they ask me for career advice is opportunity is going to knock. You don't pick when it knocks, and you don't pick how it knocks, but you got to decide if you're going to answer the door or not. And then you react to it. And so my career is a series of opportunities, problems that need to be solved. And someone said, hey, would you go do this? Sure. I never intended to be the CEO of Cree. In fact, when I was first offered the job, I wasn't sure I wanted it because I knew what a shitty job it was going to be. And when I say that, it pays well, but you pretty much have no life for the rest of the time you're in that job. You also know that the next job you get is fired. Like that's the only job after CEO is you either quit or get fired. So, you know, you kind of got to decide, do you want that life? But I, I think this career idea, I, I meet so many people who want to try to manage it. What I would say is in some companies, that's a very practical approach, but in other organizations and most entrepreneurs I've met, what they do is they're very good at seeing opportunities and taking advantage of them when they present themselves. One, one thing I'm curious about, you know, I love the idea of taking advantage of opportunities. I think you phrased it differently before, like look at areas where you can solve problems as well, too, as those are 
spots to take a look at. Since I think one thing that gets missed with a number of people early in their career is that early career folks are, you can be a leader in whatever job you're in, regardless of what point you are in your career. Whether you have direct reports or not, you are a leader if you're able to influence people to get the right work done. I'm curious, as someone that's been through this for multiple decades, what's the best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? So I didn't get a lot of formal advice in my career. I basically, it was just dive in, solve a problem, and you kind of survived it. And uh, I would say as leadership's learned, I remember people coming and asking me, hey, I'd like to be a leader of a larger group. And I'd say, I can't do that. I can make you the manager, but you make yourself the leader. Leader is about creating followership. So I think if you want to be a leader, humble, you got to become introspective. You got to be honest about every day on the people interactions. Realize it never goes as good as you want it to be. And so if you're not going to work on it every day and take it seriously, you never actually get, it's kind of like golf. You can practice all you want. You never really can beat golf. You can get a little bit better, but at the end of the day, it's still a game about surviving failures. And that's what leadership is. And so you got to embrace it for that and realize it's an ongoing journey. I tell people, I'm still growing as a leader today, and I still don't think I'm doing a very good job. Maybe the way to think about it is this. When I would drive home at night from work, I would replay my day. And every night I try to ask myself, in the interactions I had with people, did it go the way I wanted? And it had nothing to do with what the words are. You got to learn to look at a person and decide, do they care what you're saying? Body language is everything. And so if we just look around the crowd, some of you are really into it and some of you are wishing you had another beer right now and you should go get that beer. That's okay. But my point is leadership's the same thing. If you watch, you can see. And, and, but I think so few of us take the time to do that. And maybe let me flip it around. What do you think defines leadership? What do I think defines leadership? Um, I think leadership to me comes down to influence, being able to, and there's a line where it's like, you know, not necessarily taking people where they want to go, but where they need to go. And the reason I bring up the word influence, because we live in a world where like influencers are looked at these people with thousands of followers on social media or a platform. I don't think that really has anything to do with it. I don't think those influencers have a whole lot of influence. I think it really depends on actually having a group of people that you can motivate and take them to a spot that might challenge them, might make them uncomfortable, but ultimately, let's say in the case of a company, helps you grow, helps you innovate, helps you get to that uh, that next level in your business that you weren't at before. Yeah, that, one of the words I would use to describe what you're talking about is that um, leadership is convincing people to do something that they don't think is possible. So if you actually, you get them to create action. So think about it. If you can convince someone to take action and they're not sure it's going to work, that's when you know you're actually making some progress. But let's just flip this around. So I think maybe some of your coworkers and other people from Rockwell are here. One of the challenges I had as a leader is you rarely get honest insight. So as a leader, people love to tell you, no matter how culturally good your organization is at being open-minded, people try to tell the boss what they think they want to hear. So for me, the most important thing was to find people who would share with me what I call the brutal truth. Like, really, how do you see things? So without getting yourself into trouble, if you were to provide some brutal truth about what are things that you think Rockwell leadership should hear, that if they heard it, they could be more effective as leaders? I love the the tough questions you're giving me about my company. Um, but 
I have an answer to this, and for anyone at Rockwell that has a look of dread coming off, uh, coming across their face right now, I don't think you're going to hate this answer. This is going to be a piece of career advice to anyone early in their career, any students as well. First thing I would say about any time you're giving feedback, always do that in a one-on-one environment instead of in like in a meeting or in front of an auditorium full of people, or in our case, a brewery full of people. So that's where I'm going to start with that answer. But one thing that that I've found is what allows the what what allows that type of communication to take place is a culture where not only are you creating groups to take on the things that are most important to your company that are going to allow you to grow in the long term whether that's inclusion whether that's how we're diversifying our portfolio any of those things it's not only having like let's say what we'll call it a task force for example it's not only having that communication mechanism but it's also having a place where Egos can be dropped where those conversations can have happen one-on-one between, regardless of what level you're at, between people at multiple areas within the organization. And I think as someone that's been at Rockwell for 10 years, that's one thing that we've done phenomenally well where, uh, uh, let me use a personal example. I'm a sales guy. When it comes to things that I would like to see change in an organization, it's going to be customer centricity. It's going to be speed that we're able to like take care of an issue, things along those lines. I've been fortunate enough to be able to have those mechanisms and have not only groups of people to share that with, but individuals I can share that with as well. That's actually a normal conversation at Cree. So if you want to know what it looks like inside a very innovative culture, we had something called the brutal truth. We wanted constructive feedback in the group setting, not one-on-one. So if you thought someone had a stupid idea, say it was a stupid idea. And it wasn't to insult the other person. So one of the rules we had was everyone was responsible for their own mental state. So it's up to you to assume that when I give you that feedback, I'm talking about the problem. And if we all start there, it's an amazingly different dynamic. Now, I will tell you, this assumes you have an organization where the people you work with, you have to have genuine trust, right? So, it, and by the way, it's very hard to do in large organizations But this is what we did. And so what you would find is it would take us so little time to get to the heart of an issue and solve it. That was our advantage, right? Remember, Cree was making the blue LED. We were this tiny little company. There were companies like, you might have heard of General Electric or Philips. They were kind of big. And we're like, they're going to kill us. Except that they spent all their time talking to each other about stuff that didn't really matter. And we spent our time going, that sucks. How do we fix it? Let's go solve it. Let's move on to the next thing. And if everyone can embrace that, you can go faster. Now, that being said, I think the thing we miss is it requires an incredible amount of energy from the leaders to pull that off. Because not only do the people need to buy in, but the leaders have to realize that can get out of hand if you're not careful. The moment someone goes offline and makes it personal, which is very easy to happen, you have to deal with that also in public so they know it's not acceptable. What's interesting is when you do that, the group is now managing itself. You're solving problems real time, and the leader's job actually gets easier. I like I like this whole two-way interview thing because now we can get two different perspectives in the same show. And I I like everything you're saying as well, and I think there's a lot of value to that. And I'm I am the type of person that if you do need to call me out in front of an audience, you totally can. I'm all about that. Um, and I think that leads leads to my growth. But I I I, I love that answer. I thought that was I'd be interested though. What's the first step for someone that does not have that type of culture in their organization to take to get there? I think you have to first decide, does your organization want that culture? 
And when I say want it, I mean everybody's got to want it. And I would say most organizations, they probably shouldn't go down that path because honestly, they're better at other things. Look, I want to be clear. I'm passionate about innovation. It is a solution to a select number of problems. Most of the problems that a business or an organization needs to solve are not innovation-driven. Innovation is not the answer to every problem. In fact, most organizations need to figure out how do we just give the customer what they want every day at a fair price and not screw up their lives. I mean, it's most businesses have much more basic, simple problems. And so I think, be careful, when I'm providing this advice, it's very specifically geared towards if innovation is your goal. I think in some organizations, it would be the wrong approach. In fact, what I would say is, um, in most traditional organizations, you'd be better off finding ways to take it in pieces and embrace the fact that you have other great things about your culture. One of the things that... Uh, I thought the American Family Guy said really well. I was really impressed with them because I really went into that thinking. There's no way insurance is innovative. And they said, look, for 92 years, there are people that built this company and made it what it is. And we're not successful by accident. And all those things they do every day, those are just as important and oftentimes more important. And so I think we have to be a little careful. We, we have businesses that have, quote, we want to make innovation the answer. It's the answer to some of your problems. It's not the answer to all of your problems. So be really careful because I've seen companies that go so far down that path, they forget what they were good at, and now they've got nothing. Looking back on your career, would you have balanced that differently at any point? Yes, but not for the reason you think. So when I joined Cree, it was incredibly innovative. I loved it. I became addicted to it. It's what I'm passionate about. And as Cree got bigger... I could either turn the reins over to someone else or I could become a better manager. So I can tell you being the CEO of a $100 million company with maybe a 1,000 employees is radically different from a $1.6 billion company with 7,000 employees. It's just a different job. And I had to decide to become better at management. And I learned how to do it. And in the end, I think I did a fair job of it. And if I did it again, I would either keep the company more innovative longer and take my chances or I would have given the reins over to another CEO sooner. The company's in a great place today, and it's being really well run. I'm super excited. I'm still a large shareholder. It's doing all the right things. I don't like doing that. And so one of the pieces of advice we haven't gotten to is, I think you got to be really honest about what you're, not only what you're good at, but what you like to do. And when I say like, I, like it's work. There's a reason they pay you to do it. If it if you would do it for free, they wouldn't pay you, okay? So it's supposed to be kind of hard, and there's things you're not going to like about it. But at the end of the day, I much more prefer the risk-taking environment, challenging people, the very leadership-centric. I learned how to be a pretty good manager, but I wasn't having any fun. And by when I say fun, I don't mean like I went to work on Yeehaw. When you're not having fun as a CEO, what it basically means is this. Every day, problems come up, and what you see when the problem comes up is you go, oh, I know exactly how this is going to go, and I can think of the seven things that are going to have to deal with to get to the other side of this. When you're in the right frame of mind, hey, that problem came up, and you go, yep, challenges, but every one of those is an opportunity to come up with something different. And by the end of my career, I got to a place where I started seeing the problem and stopped seeing the opportunity. So I'd like to ask you a question. This is something I do in all my podcasts because I'm interested in you know, Innovators on Tap is about mindset, right? It's, it's not what did you invent, it's why were you able to take that risk and do that? So my favorite question to ask is this, what is your, in your career so far, what's your biggest failure? 
So, as far as my biggest failure goes, I'm going to start with the best piece of advice I ever got on failure, because it's topical to where we are in Milwaukee right now, too. Right before I was about to relocate to Houston, Texas, for basically my first full-time job, I went out to lunch with our regional vice president for that area. And I remember a couple things about that conversation, but the thing that sticks out the most, because it was one of those things where it's like, hey, you're going into your first sales job, what, what type of advice would you give? And the line that has stuck with me to this day was him telling me, if you're not losing, you're not trying hard enough. You could say, you could put, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough also. And I remember pursuing a large opportunity, large greenfield opportunity early in my career for, let's say, about two years. And I remember getting to the end of that pursuit. I had all the right help. I had done all the right things. I had followed the sales process to the T. And I remember getting the phone call saying I had lost that order. And that was, I mean, it was miserable. Like, right when you're getting started, you put a lot of your effort into that right at the start of your career. Nevertheless, I thought back to that point. It's like, all right, this is just the first loss that really sucks. But I'm going to learn from this. And I'm going to make sure I never forget this feeling. So that way, the next time around, I take the right steps. And even though I'm only a decade into my career at this point, it's interesting being able to reflect on those experiences where you can learn everything by the book the first time around, but able to look back and say, wow, I know what that felt like, not only like tactically, but also emotionally, and be able to work from that to begin with. All right. We are at the seven o'clock hour. So we know most of you came to drink beer, not to listen to us. But uh, I want to just say from my perspective, uh, thank you all for being here. This is really cool. Um, when Chris, well, I heard about his podcast, and I realized we both have a podcast based around beer drinking. Um, it's a pretty cool idea. We have a very, it, we share it in common. Um, and I'll just leave it with you. Anything you want to say? The last thing I just want to do is thank you all for being here and to raise a glass to all of you. So one final cheers. Thanks for being a part of the first ever Innovators on Tap Manufacturing Happy Hour collaboration. Cheers to all of you. Cheers, everyone. Thanks to Chris Lukey for collaborating with Innovators on Tap for this joint podcast, Milwaukee Brewing Company for letting us use their space, and for everyone who came out to the live recording. Please be sure to check out Chris's podcast, Manufacturing Happy Hour, and add it to your podcast rotation. If you're interested in my book that was mentioned during the podcast, you can find more details at chuckswoboda.com. The book comes out on May 5th, but is available now for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues, because I think we all know of things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at innovatorsontap.com. We are always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.